Blog Talk Radio.
Zikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a daily, on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh Today is Saturday, March 25th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to our program for today. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the burgeoning power shortages plaguing several African states throughout the continent. The Rwandan judiciary has commuted the sentence of an opposition figure who was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has expressed satisfaction with the defense assistance uh, from the Russian Federation. And uh, the Russian President Vladimir Putin says his military forces are prepared to deal with depleted uranium weapons being deployed to Ukraine by Britain. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on International Women's History Month with a special segment on Queen Mother Moore, a legendary activist within the Pan-Africanist, Black Nationalist, and Communist movements in the United States and globally. Finally, we look back on the lifetimes and contributions of artists and media personality Hazel Scott. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of the TPOK Jazz Orchestra uh, featuring the vocals of Danielle and Nana. Uh, Let's listen in. Et pour ça, la passe, il a monté maître. 
years later in a widely criticized trial. Government spokesman Yolanda Makolo uh, told uh, the international press yesterday that the presidential order was issued after a request for clemency on behalf of Rusas Sabanginga, uh, a 68-year-old U.S. resident of Bel- and a Belgian citizen. Senior U.S. officials said uh, Rusas Sabanginga uh, arrived late Friday at the home of the Qatari ambassador in the Rwandan capital of Kigali and was expected to leave the country in the coming days. U.S. President Joe Biden hailed the news saying, quote, Paul's family is eager to welcome him back to the United States, and I share their joy at today's good news. Uh, He thanked the governments of Rwanda and Qatar, as well as the U.S. government officials who worked, quote, to achieve today's happy outcome, unquote. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Uganda highly appreciates its cooperation with Russia in areas of defense. That's according to Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. He said this in an exclusive interview with the TOS news agency's their first deputy director, Mikhail Guzman. Quote, today, we are very satisfied with our cooperation with the Russian Federation. We cooperate in the sphere of defense, and we buy high-quality weapons and technologies from Europe, unquote. The Ugandan leader said, Museveni also emphasized that he was grateful for the Soviet Union's assistance in Africa's fight against colonialism. And finally, uh, Russia has something to respond to depleted uranium shells. It has hundreds of thousands of such munitions, but it is not using them now, Russian President Vladimir Putin told Rossiya 24 television channel earlier today. He said that, quote, I must say that, that certainly... Russia has something to respond. Without exaggeration, we have hundreds of thousands, namely hundreds of thousands of such shells. Uh, We are not using them now, unquote, the president said. In a statement published on March the 20th, Baroness Annabelle Goldie, uh, the UK Minister of State uh, for Defense, wrote in response to an inquiry from a member of the House of Lords that the British government would send Ukraine munitions containing depleted uranium and featuring enhanced effectiveness against armored vehicles. On March the 21st, Putin said that the plans of sending depleted uranium shells to Ukraine proves uh, that the West plans to, quote, fight against Russia down to the last Ukrainian, already not in the words, but in deeds, unquote. The Russian leader said that Moscow will have to respond accordingly. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews. Blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for 
Saturday, uh, March 25th, uh, 2023. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for this week. Title Heartbreak uh, Straight Ahead. And uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to our program. March is uh, International Women's History Month. And this weekend, we're closing out our programming for the month. And today, we're going to focus in on a legendary figure uh, in the left uh, Pan-Africanist and Black Nationalist reparations movement in the United States, and that is Audley Queen Mother Moore. 
and uh, this uh, interview uh, will explain uh, some of her trajectory. Uh, born in the uh, late uh, 19th century and lived uh, well into the concluding uh, years of the 20th century, Queen Mother Moore uh, had been involved in the driving movement. Uh, she was also an independent businesswoman. Uh, she was involved with the Communist Party for many years and ran for office um, uh, under that auspices. Uh, she was a proponent of reparations, uh, Pan-Africanism, a co-founder of the Republic of New Africa, world traveler. Let's listen to an interview uh, with Queen Mother Moore during uh, the previous decades. My name is Earl Pinto, and I am the guest host of the Flo Kennedy Show. We are greatly honored to have as our guest today a great woman, a freedom fighter for African people throughout the world. Her name is Queen Mother Moore. Welcome, Queen Mother. Thank you. Um, how did you become known as Queen Mother Moore? Well, that name was bestowed upon me by the African students, first of all, as a result of my years of activities in this country. They um, gave it to me. And when I went to Africa they, uh, to Dr. Nkrumah's funeral, the chief heard about me, and he sent for me to come to him. And I went, and he said, I'm going to make you officially queen mother, queen mother of the Ashanti. And uh, he initiated me queen mother. But I was queen mother before I went to Africa. <laughs> um, did you personally know um, the late Kwame Nkrumah? Yes, I did. I knew him here. Okay, you met him while, while he was yes. visiting here? Yes. Okay, and that is in conjunction with your work. Yes. Um, I understand that you sent a petition to the United Nations in, I think, 1957 um, for uh, reparations uh, for, the, for, for the black people in America. Explain yes. something about that to us. Yes, the petition called for us to go back to Africa for those who wanted to go back. And for those who wanted to stay here, there had to be certain indemnity given for the people who wanted to stay, the people who wanted to go. What kind of indemnity? Well, I was asking for $200 billion. $200 billion Dollars to indemnify? To, yes, for the injury that we have received. The injury is as a result of our enslavement. Okay, that's for our 400 years of enslavement. Yes. As reparations, we were we, yes. we requested 200 billion dollars. Yes. Okay, when you sent this petition to the United Nations, what kind of response did you get? I got very good response. But he told me that uh, uh, we needed a member nation to introduce the resolution since we were not 
officially members of the UN. Is this with the, your work with the Republic of New Africa? No, that was not. I was, I went as a member of the Ethiopian Women, the Universal Association of Ethiopian Women. Um, I understand that you founded that organization. Yes. And what was that organization about? To save our men from execution. They were being executed at the rate of two a week almost. There was somebody being executed. Then unjustly yes. executed? Yes, we felt they were unjustly, unjustly executed. And we tried to save some of them. We did save some Mention a few. from execution. Labat and Porret, we saved those. We saved uh, Jenkins. We saved uh, um, another brother. Uh, well, there was a number of yes. um, uh, people that were saved from execution because yes. they were unjustly charged with crimes? Yes. And where did this take place? In, in New Orleans. Okay, you're from New Orleans, yes. I understand. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also worked with Marcus Garvey. Yes. Tell I, us first something about Marcus Garvey. Well, I was first brought into the Marcus Garvey movement by the fact that he, I understood that he was to come and speak to us in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went to the meeting, and lo and behold, he didn't come. And we heard that the mayor refused to allow him to come, so we were very incensed about it and got a delegation to go see why. And um, then it was guaranteed that Marcus Garvey would come the next night. And the hall was packed with people, and everybody went with ammunition. They had guns? They had guns. Everybody had guns. Blue Steel, Smith & Westerns, uh, German Lugers, had plenty German Lugers because, you know, the war had boys from the war and everything. Okay. And uh, I had two guns with me, and they all had guns and ammunition, a bag of ammunition. Everybody had a, what you call a, a suitcase today. We used to call satchels. What was all this? Why of ammunition? So, why were you so armed? Because we was afraid the police would stop him from coming again. Okay. And uh, we wanted to protect him. And so we went. Thirty-five hundred people was in that hall. And so when Garvey came, we applauded very much. And he said, "My friends, I want to apologize for not speaking to you." last night, but the reason I didn't speak to you is because the mayor permitted himself to be used as a stooge by the police department to prevent me from speaking to you. And when he said that, the police jumped up and said, I'll run you in. And when the police did that, everybody jumped up on the benches. We had benches then. Uh -huh. and took out their guns straight up. The guns were straight up in the air. Speak, Garvey, speak. <laughs> and uh, Garvey said, and as I was saying, and he went and repeated himself, and the police filed out of there like little puppy dogs with their <laughs> little tails between their legs. Every policeman filed out of the hall. Okay, after which you understand you started a chapter of his organization? No, I didn't start a chapter. And we had a chapter going down there. Okay. Uh -huh. And you, you purchased um, stock in the... Stock in the Black Star Line, yes. What was that? What was the Black Star Line? 
Blackstone Line was ships that Marcus Garvey was buying. For what purpose? To, to go to Africa, to go to Africa and to trade with Africa. He was going to trade, trade with the West Indies and Africa. And what was the result of the, the purchase of the ships? Did they ever get to Africa? No, the, the people sabotaged the ships. There was great sabotage. You know, uh, on, on Garvey's board, he had a lot of enemies of our people. You couldn't talk about Africa in those days without expecting the agents to be around you. You had the agents of Belgium, you had the agents of France, you had the agents of England, and all those agents were sitting on his board. Or trying to and, sabotage his work. And yes, in the, in the form of black skins. Okay. You see? So they, they sabotaged the ships. All right. And then they charged Garvey with fraud because they were saying that he was selling unworthy ships, you know. How, so, how did the work of Marcus Garvey influence your life? Oh, very much so. Oh, yes, because he taught me about the glories of Africa. I never went to sleep anymore since then. Never. I did much study since then of my own. On, on the mm -hmm. glories of Africa? Yes. You've uh, made numerous trips to Africa. I yes. understand that you recently attended the, um, the Women's Conference, the International yes. Women's Conference. Yes, yes. Tell us about that. Yes, that was very great. It was very widely attended with 8,000 women. Okay. Yes. During your, during your travels, recent travels to Africa, you went to um, Ethiopia, I understand. Yes, I went to Ethiopia. Did you um, witness some of the famine? No, they didn't let us go there. We went, we didn't see anything, anything of the famine. You wouldn't even know they had a famine. I guess they kept that from the people. I guess that's sometimes like people visiting New York never get to see Harlem. That's, that's right. That's right. That's okay, right. They just show you the... That's right. The part they want you to see. That's right. You have um, land in upstate um, Parksville, I believe it is. Where yes. It's, um, you have the Adit Mount Addis Ababa. Mount Addis Ababa. Okay. And you mm -hmm. um doing work on that um, mountain. Well, we want to build there a college of African studies. We want to build a monument to the hundred million Africans who perished in the slave trade and for those who died since all the people who died in the struggle. A hundred, hundred million, million a hundred million died in the slave trade, yes. So that's our whole holocaust. Yes, that's our holocaust. Holocaust. Yes. All right, this institution that you want to build, the purpose of it will be to educate black people? Yes, to, to, to educate our people, to help our people to understand, to de-negroize us, to de-negroize de us, change our minds from European minds. You know, we have no idea the condition that we're in, the psychoneurosis that we suffer. We suffer a terrible, terrible blight 
We don't know who we are. We we use European names, and we we just are comfortable with our condition. We really don't know who we are. We have no idea. We're captive, and we we absolutely comfortable with this situation. I know I feel personally very honored that you had given me an African name, Menelik. And don't and most, you feel better? I feel a lot, a, a lot right. better. And most of my friends yes. call me by yes. Menelik. Yes. And um, mm-hmm. what, what is the significance of that name? The, that name is meant, uh, it's great. It's, it's an Ethiopian name. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You're working with um, Mount Addis Ababa and you're going to erect a monument to commemorate the 100 million yeah. blacks that had died? Africans. Africans. Yes, yes, Africans, in. yes. Okay, um, you, you have an organization that's working with this yes. effort? Yes, yes. It perished in the slave traffic. Okay. What, um, what are some of the other works, things that you're personally involved in presently? Well, I'm, that's, that's mostly what I'm taking up with now, building, trying to build that monument and trying to build the institute. The, the institute? Is yes. It, oh, that's the school? Yes. You once told me that um, you were fighting for the freedom of, a, of Lizzie oh, Williams. Oh, for Lizzie Williams, yes. Lizzie Williams, bless her heart, she's... So dear, she just sent me a Christmas card with five dollars in it. She's so wonderful. She was sentenced. Uh, she was sentenced to two hundred and eighteen years in prison. She's in her seventies. Why was she sen- sentenced? She, for perjury in Alabama. For perjury, her boyfriend stole two chickens, and she swore that he was in, with her. And they charged her for that, for lying, you know, that he was with her instead of stealing the chickens, and then charged her with accessory to the crime. I understand that you was instrumental in breaking Jim Crow in the baseball league. Yes. You know, at one time, there was Jim Crow in the league that blacks couldn't play. And uh, the, the people, uh, the, especially the Jewish people, was fighting Jim Crow in the big league. And they asked me to head the committee to fight, to fight Jim Crow in the big league. And, of course, I was a Negro then. I used to be a Negro. And uh, everything sounded good to me. The Negro fights Jim Crow and that kind of thing. And I fought Jim Crow. And um, I didn't realize what I was doing. Um, if I hadn't been a Negro, I wouldn't have fought to get a, a Negro in the big league. I wouldn't have did that. I would have fought to get a team in the big league. One of our baseball teams, we had great teams. I dismantled the teams. My work dismantled the teams. We had uh, neighborhoods where our ball games would play and the children was happy and 
the old ladies were selling pies and things at the ball games, and children was chiming shoes, and uh, it, we had hotels. And it was something when they had a ball game in town. But all of that's dismantled. All of that, there's no more hotels or anything. You see, Jim Crow has done, done away with all of that. Excuse me. I would like to uh, reintroduce our guest. Our guest today is Queen Mother Moore. This is the Flo Kennedy Show. Queen Mother, you said that you were a Negro at the time, and you wished to, <laughs> and you wanted to, um, you wished that you had put teams instead of individuals into the league. Uh, was you instrumental in getting the Jack, Jackie Robinson into the league? I was interested in breaking Jim Crow, and uh, yes, J Jackie came as a result of that, and uh, Statue Page, and all of those people. I didn't know them, but they all was employed as a result of breaking Jim Crow in the big league. That's right. Uh huh. Your work with the Universal um, Association of Ethiopian Women resulted, I understand, in um, putting welfare. Res recipients back on the roll? Oh, the, the, the welfare dismissed 23,000 families from the roll, put them off, white and black, mothers with illegitimate children, just threw them off, sent the mother's letter saying, this is your last letter you're going to receive, the last the last welfare you've got, the last one, is the last one you're going to get. Not the next one you're going to get, but the last one you receive. The one you've eaten up is the last one you're going to get. That's hard. That's right. And um, told the Red Cross, don't help these people. They're illegitimate and they're not entitled to help. Told the charity hospital not to help them told the Salvation Army, don't give them a thing because they're not entitled. So the mothers had nowhere to go. Not, we had to help the mothers to get food. We went around and begged the stores to give us food. The French market gave us food, baskets, cartons of food. And um, the bakeries gave us Baskets of bread, all of their stale bread they gave us, and we, uh, the, the pharmacists gave us medicine for the babies, and all. Were these um, twenty-three thousand families eventually restored to the welfare rolls? They were, yes. They, we, they, Louisiana was called to Washington for a hearing. Say, why have you cut these people off? And uh, Long got up and said that uh, that, uh, that two two states had cut them off, and he didn't hear any rukas about it. And why all this fuss about going on in Louisiana? I say because you didn't have any Ethiopian women in in, in those states, and they wrapped the gavel for me because that was a judicial hearing. It wasn't to be the one to speak. But I spoke there. I said, because you, you didn't have any Ethiopian women. I was told that um, the Ethiopian women had helped um, the Ethiopians after 
Um, I think Mussolini attacked Ethiopia during yes. the war. Oh, yes. We played a great role in getting clothing and getting food, getting things, uh, sheets. For Went to the laundry and got sheets and got the nurses to sterilize the sheets and roll them up in bandages to send to Ethiopia. Oh, yes. Um, did these, did, did the supplies reach Ethiopia? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Did you ever meet the emperor at the time? I've, I've never met the emperor personally, uh -huh. but I've seen him a lot of times. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is, um, your work now is with the monuments, you said, and you want to, um, pushed forth the idea of building a monument on Mount Abba Survival. Yes, it's absolutely necessary, very necessary for our people to understand that we must build that monument to those millions, hundred millions who perished during the traffic of slavery. Is this monument yes. going to be a, a physical building? It's Is it going, going to, be, to a be a school, a college, a big, a big everlasting monument. Yes. And we're going to have African students to come and, and attend this school, too. I was in a library um, not long ago, and I saw your, your picture um, in the main library at 42nd Street in New York. Um, that was, what was that about? Well, uh, the uh, Schlesinger sent throughout the country, they gathered pictures of the outstanding women, the most militant women, the women who have made the greatest contribution, over 70 years old. They had to be over 70. How old are you now? Yes. I'm 87. <laughs> 87. Right. Yes, I'm 87. And these women were over yes, 70 years yes, old? Yes, they had to be over 70 years old. And I was one of the 10 outstanding women that they had in the country. And they made my picture. That was a, a great honor. Yes, it was. Very great. And they put it in the library. Okay. And it's also in the... On uh, 42nd Street and in, in the uh, Schomburg Library. And um, I think there was a, uh, a meeting there at the Schomburg yes. also yes. commemorating the women who yes. were selected. Yes. Uh, we have... Um, um, not much time left in this program. And would you be able to sum up what you think a message, let's say for black youth or Africans, that would help them in knowing themselves and, and being a, con a contributor to their race? Yes, well, I think the most important thing is to study and to find your name, who you are, to get a name for yourself. You have to get a name. Don't don't uh, go through life with a European name. You've got to put down that name. Just take a name. Just take an African name and name yourself. And um, learn who you are. That's the... To how, how would you suggest that uh, a young person go about that? Well... You've got to look yourself in the mirror. Who are you? 
who are you? Most of our people don't know who they are. They don't know. They think in European. They don't have a mind of their own. They got to get their right mind back. They can't think. They can't think. I don't care if you have your PhD. Don't tell me you've gone to the best colleges. The best college didn't give you your identity, didn't give you a national identity at all. You've got to be able to comprehend what you think, and you've got to be able to understand and think for yourself and stop thinking in the pattern that the other people want you to think all the time. You think this begins with start uh, taking upon yourself an African name? Well, yes. And that has yes. a great significance and, I guess, yes. influence over the mind. Yes. I know it has for me. Yes. So you suggest that the young black people take upon themselves an African name yes. to get to know who they are. That's right. I didn't have to change my name because the Moors were a great nation of Africans, you see. I didn't have to do that. So you were born with yes. an African name. I was born a Moor. <laughs> yes. Very good. Mm -hmm. We have here Queen Mother Moore, and this is the Flo Kennedy Show. Thank you very much. See you next time. Welcome back. And uh, that was a rare archival audio file of the interview uh, with uh, Audley Queen Mother Moore uh, from 1985. She talks about her uh, visit to uh, the International Women's Conference held that year in Kenya and a lot of the history of her involvement uh, in uh, movements uh, spanning uh, the 20th century. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide radio broadcast, and March is International Women's History Month. Today we're focusing on Queen Mother Moore. Uh, here's another uh, excerpt from an interview uh, where Queen Mother Moore discusses her involvement with the Communist Party in the United States. Let's listen in. Uh, what led you to become interested in the Communist Party? Well... That was a funny thing. I was uh, in the Republican Party, and um, I had just helped to fight for one of their candidates. 
and uh, had a terrible experience with the Republicans. Uh, they, they told us that now that, uh, that they were having a reception, a victory reception, and when you colored people get ready to have yours, we'll help you with it. And that just shocked me, you know, uh, when she said, when you colored people mm -hmm. get ready to have your victory reception. So uh, uh, just at that time, there was a big demonstration in Harlem. And my sister came and told me, it was right after the election. And she said, uh, you here in the house and said they're having a big demonstration in Harlem. I say, who? She said, the Reds. I say, Reds? For what? She said, for the Scottsboro Boys. And uh, so and I thought, uh, at the moment she said that, uh, I, why, where were the Reds when all the other lynchings was going on, you know? But uh, that, be that as it may, I went and rang the doorbells of the people I'd been working with in the election campaign and told them, come on, let's go. I hear that Harlem is ablaze with people uh, fighting for the Scottsboro Boys. So uh, they came. I brought eight people with me to the demonstration. And when I saw the demonstration, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. There were thousands of people. But nearly all of them was white. Not many blacks at all. And one little white uh, young lady uh, had a sign, Death to the Lynchers. So I took the sign from her. I said, no, you allow me to carry this sign. You can walk by my side, but I must carry the sign. So I went around marching with the demonstrators and came back and uh, signed up and began to work like Beatles. I mean, I really worked like beavers, rather. Mm -hmm. What What did you do? Um, what had a, uh, what sold kind of literature, sold literature, mm -hmm. pamphlets, uh, two and three hundred a day. I sold those little pamphlets. There was only two cents, mm -hmm. and I sold the Daily Worker, and I did everything I could. But I and I thought I was in the Communist Party, but I wasn't. Um, I was in the ILD. International Labor Defense, and I worked. I worked on the picnics and the um, whatever, whatever I could do. I couldn't do enough, really. I worked night and day, and uh, it was only when I went to make a report for the uh, picnic tickets that I had that I found out that I wasn't in the Communist Party at all. I thought I was in the Communist Party, but it wasn't at all. So uh, one of the people in the Daily Worker said, you asked me what branch did I belong to. When I told him what branch, he knew that was the ILD and not the Communist Party. And he said, you're not a, com you're not a member of the Communist Party, comrade? I said, well, I thought I was. He said, well, you come here. I'm going to sign you up. I was signed up that way. Uh -huh. But the other people in the Communist Party was waiting for me to get ripe, they said. What do they mean by that? Well, they don't just recruit, or they didn't just recruit anybody. They give to let you be tested first, you know, and according to. But my God, I was working so hard, uh, night and day. I uh, just can't imagine anybody feeling that I wasn't right, you know, right for the Communist Party. But they was afraid of me because I had a Cadillac car, 
and I, you know, paid bourgeois to them. Were you still in business at that time? No, I wasn't in business. Uh-huh. Mm. And was your husband uh, still in was in Harlem with you? Yes. And your sister? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh-huh. So you kept together as yes. a, as a unit. Were there blacks uh, members in the ILD and the Communist Party? Yeah, there was some, uh-huh. not too many. Uh-huh. The men, there was some brothers there. Because they all had white women, and that was a disgusting thing to me. I had to choke on this all the time to see that they couldn't have a brother in the in the movement unless a white woman would grab him. And uh, many of the brothers would leave their wives, children, to cling to these white women. And uh, I complained about that several times, but uh, that put me on the suspicious list, you know. Suspicious? Yes. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you, they thought you were an enemy of some kind? Uh, well, you know, I was nationalistic, uh-huh. they felt. And, uh, well, how did they I explain was, it? They didn't bother to explain it. Uh, they'd rather rationalize on the fact that uh, my ideology wasn't as it should be, you know, for integration. And that you were a nationalist? Yes, because I'd come out of the Garvey movement. They never did really trust me. Welcome back. And uh, that was excerpts uh, from an interview, all interview, uh, with uh, Queen Mother Moore on her uh, tenure in the Communist Party inside the United States. Uh, You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Today is Saturday, uh, March 25th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we're going to move into a webinar, a more extensive uh, discussion on the uh, lifetimes and contributions of uh, Audley Moore, uh, properly known as Queen Mother Moore. And of course, um, let's listen in uh, to this segment. So without further ado, I'm so thrilled and so honored. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ashley Farmer, Associate Professor in the Departments of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the author of Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, and her upcoming book is Queen Mother Audley Moore, Mother of Black Nationalism. Dr. Farmer, I'm so grateful to you for being here, for being in conversation with us, and I can't wait for all that we will learn together. So thank you, thank you, thank you. How are you? Can you hear me okay? Yes. I think it might just be a little low. Okay. I'm trying to get on your headphones, so I may need to take them out. Is that better, or should I? Yes. Okay. Sounds amazing. Thank you. Thanks for checking. So we're going to jump right in with our first question. Uh, One thing that I love about your work, there are many things that I love about your work, but I'll I'll pinpoint uh, my heart's work is really around storytelling for social justice. And you talk about the importance of narrative in your teaching. And so in your talk at the National Endowment for the Humanities Summer Institute last August, you said, everything is a story. And asking them, students, what narratives do you know? Why are textbooks this way? And most importantly, who is invested in you learning a history only this way? Who does that serve? 
And then also, what histories do you want to tell? I love those questions so, so much. So can you tell us more about what you mean? Why are narratives important? And what are narratives shaped by? So, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I am a reality TV lover. And <laughs> unabashedly, there, there, is, there is no brow too low for me. Um, but I enter with that because I think it helps people understand. I like it because it crafts a good story, right? It's riveting. I know that it's not always true. It is in ways some kind of like fictionalized, you know, semi-reality, et cetera. But what it is, is kind of a template for how we show up culturally, how we show up economically, how we show up politically, et cetera, right? Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the narratives that we choose to tell culturally. And what's really amazing, I think, about history in general is that that's exactly what it is, a set of collective stories we tell each other about who we are, how much money we make, how we identify, who's in power, right? Who's cool, who's not cool, et cetera. Um, and so I became a historian because I, I wanted to tell those stories, but also I realized that just like with reality TV, a lot of those narratives are fake or being you know, spun in a way to make me believe a set of things, right? You know, when you see something on TV and then when you learn the true story, I mean, I think Jean's um, story of Rosa Parks is really wonderful case in point of that, right? About the narratives that we have and why that works. Um, so anyway, I, I think that it's really valuable to think about what are we collectively invested in? Who are we collectively invested in? And who benefits from that collective investment? Um, and so if we think of history as just a set of collective investments and stories we tell each other about the past, um, then we can start to think about whether or not um, those are the stories that really are true to what happened. Um, and usually the truth is pretty juicy, so there's no need to cut a paper over it. <laughs> uh, that's why I always tell my students. Um, but also um, that some narratives hurt people, right? And we see the real effects of that. I mean, to take my reality TV narrative or kind of analogy a little bit further, you know, once, you know, a certain set of people start to get stereotyped a certain way on TV, that really affects how people who look like them, act like them, live in that area, then live their lives, right? And history does the same thing. Um, so I'm just really invested in thinking about how we collectively think about the past and how we can do that. I will also add that I think um, narratives are so ingrained. They're such a key part of like our cultural work um, that we kind of start to blindly accept them. So one of the things that I think is really good about just naming them is that, and perhaps helping students deconstruct them, is it also just develops their critical thinking skills, right? It starts to make you think like everything around you isn't a given. Every story that you're being told isn't necessarily the truth because it's being written in a textbook. And I kind of feel like once they start to break those things down, you get different kind of race glass and gender glasses, which, which they see everything. And sometimes they even come back to me and tell me they see reality TV differently. So it comes full circle. <laughs> I love that so much because one thing that you are pinpointing for us is examining power and how power shows up in the story and who ultimately gets to share the story, who gets to distort, who gets to erase the stories and really honing in on what that does to the narrative and ultimately how those narrative shapes beliefs and values and actions and whether or not we uphold or dismantle the status quo. So we're gonna be getting into a lot of storytelling today because you have so many rich stories in your book and just in your work overall. 
But before we get to the life of Queen Mother Audley Moore in particular, I would love to hear, can you tell us about your decision to focus on the lives of revolutionary Black women? So, um, you know, I think that one of the things that I love about the women that I study or admire so much about the women that I study is their political imagination. Um, you know, I, I like I think a lot of people look around and feel very frustrated um, with the way things are. But just kind of like when we were talking about the narratives, um, sometimes you don't know what new narrative to make um, and what could be. And one of the things that I have found that the women that I study do particularly well is offer really great ideas and understandings of freedom dreams, right? They have really expansive political imaginations. Why do they have them? Because they're at the bottom of the totem pole, right? They're the people that are most affected by race, class, gender, sexuality constraints. And so you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by imagining a totally kind of upending or reordering of the current systems that we live in. Um, and so are some of their stories or ideas about how we should do things, do they seem far-fetched? Yes, otherwise they wouldn't be radical or revolutionary, right? Um, but I think they offer us a compass, um, a way to point our, our intentionality, a way to move with purpose together. And while we may not always get there, when we have a compass towards where we want to go, um, we do, we create a different set of choices, right? And we create a different set of actions. Um, so I found just kind of as a collective of historical actors, their work is just really um, inspirational in terms of thinking about expanding my political imagination. Um, and so I think that's why I'm drawn to them over and over again. I appreciate that so much. And one of the things that I so appreciate about your work, too, is just the focusing on everyday Black women, everyday revolutionary Black women. And as you were talking about imagination, I was thinking about some of the work of yours that I've read. And you've talked about the importance of using visual sources like cartoons to teach some of these stories. Uh, and I think that that could be really advantageous, too, for our, our audience that is comprised of many educators. And so can you talk about how Black women have expressed their politics through art? And, and how does that relate to how we can rethink what intellectual production is and looks like in, in the stories that we tell? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm certainly interested in, in the organizing that Black women radicals and revolutionaries do, but I'm also really interested, like I said, in their thoughts, um, how, what, what, they, what they think their politics are, why their politics are this versus that, and how they try to convince others to, to get on board with these kind of radical imaginings that we're talking about. Um, but one of the things that we have to keep in mind when talking about Black women in particular is that kind of the forms and formats of intellectual production, the things that um, we might go to most often when we think of political thought, like a speech, a treatise, right, a law, we weren't able to do those things. We're still often not able to do those things. Those are just not the forms and formats that are available to us. So on the one hand, it can start to be a little bit difficult to kind of find what we might think of as evidence of Black women's political thought. But it also opens up our minds to different ideas of what political expression can look like. Um, so in the book, I read um, an, a woman named Alice Childress, who um, was a radical Black playwright. I read her satire about a maid who um, is serialized and goes in a black newspaper and she goes and works in a white woman's home then goes home every day and tells her friend Marge about it. And even though it's all fiction, 
through their interactions, you get a sense of the politics and how Black women are moving in the world, right? Um, another example is the Black Panther Party newspaper. A lot of people don't know um, that women drew a lot of those um, initial drawings in addition to Emory Douglas, and they often featured women more often expressing politics. And if you think about, um, you know, what is more visually appealing, you know, and what kind of captures people in that, people's imaginations really instantaneously, it is those beautiful mixed media drawings and figures that they made that also, um, you know, express a form of politics, right? By what the woman is wearing or what the woman is doing. So one of the things I really try to encourage myself to do and others to do is think about just a political expression and political imagination being really, really expansive and found in a lot of different places. And I think that really opens up our minds to different understandings of historical sources. Absolutely. And as you talk about being interested in thoughts and political expression, as we know, uh, throughout history, these political expressions have been policed and surveilled. I think just recently there was that piece that came out in the New York Times about how Aretha Franklin was surveilled by the FBI. And we have a, a lesson at the Zen Education Project called Subversive Stories from the Red Scare, uh, written by my comrade Ursula Wolf-Rocca. And so we'll place that in the chat box for you all. And one of the figures that I had learned about as being surveilled by the FBI was Josephine Baker. And so we're seeing how this political expression through art is being policed, is being surveilled, and, and just the, the resistance. So how extensively were the women you studied tracked by the FBI? And what does that tell us about their role in history? Um, I love this question because it sits at kind of at the intersection of the work I'm doing and, you know, where I'm going. I'm thinking about writing about Black women in CoinTelPro next. Um, but um, through the counterintelligence program or CoinTelPro, uh, Black women were surveilled largely when it started in the 1950s all the way through really the late 70s. Um, so under the Freedom of Information Act, I'm able to get, you know, some of the records released are always heavily redacted. You never know if you got everything, but at least it offers us some record of how they were thinking about these black women. Um, and it's really actually an interesting subject because I think a lot of people know about say the King letter, right? Where Hoover and the agents tried to get King to kill himself, or people are really clear about the way Malcolm X was surveilled, but we don't talk a lot about the sustained kind of psychological and economic and political terror that Black women endured for sometimes decades, sometimes like in the case of Queen Mother Moore, from like the 20s to the 80s, right? A long time of day after day of surveillance. And so I think we have to ask ourselves a couple of things about that. Um, from the activist side, those of the women survived it, but at what cost? And how do we care for their stories and talk about their experiences with an ethic of care? but not let them get lost in the idea that state repression only happens to men, right? It just happens in different ways to women, um, and sometimes the same ways. And then also, too, what does it say that the government devoted so many resources to tracking these women for so long, right? Um, and how the, might that help us understand who they found to be political threats, right? Um, even if they weren't the same kind of major players and leaders in the movement, that many of us know today. Oh, this is such critical history. 
and to think about the surveillance. And I also appreciate, too, the complexity and nuance that you're bringing up of the, the ethic of care in being able to share these stories. So as we, we dive a little bit deeper into the storytelling, uh, let's take a deep dive into the life of Queen Mother Audley Moore. Um, but before we do that, we'd actually like to take a quick poll and see how folks are thinking about this work. So the question reads, before reading about this session, had you heard about Queen Mother Moore? And there's a second question of how have you taught about reparation? So the answers are yes, her name sounded familiar, but that's about it, or no. And then have you taught about reparations? Yes, in depth. Yes, but only briefly. Not, not yet, but I have plans to, and no, but I'm curious to learn more. So once we finish up with this poll, we'll post it. I'll give some what's coming up, and then we'll dive into a number of questions about Queen Mother oddly more. And I'll say, too, one of the things that I found interesting about in reading your work, Dr. Farmers, you were talking about uh, how she was surveilled at, in her 80s. And so to think about this lifelong surveillance and what that means, too, when we think about the care and, and the wellness and the well-being of a human, right, who is doing this resistive work. Um, yeah, what does that mean for history? I see people in the chat are excited for the deep dive. Can I tell a little kind of tantalizing story about yes. her and surveillance while we are finishing up? Absolutely, okay. yes. So, you know, none of these women are dumb. And so, I mean, you know, I want you to imagine just like a car creeping behind you every day and you're like, y'all aren't slick, right? Or I want you to imagine like um, somebody kind of calling up and prank calling your house to see if you live there, right? They're very clear about what the federal government is doing and the FBI agents, they know all the tricks. So at some point, um, they, they, they say um, she gets tired of them just calling up and acting a fool. So she says, fine, I'll come down and I'll come to the FBI office for an interview, right? So she's just like, I'm not even gonna hide what I'm doing not even going to try to pretend it's not what I'm doing. And she goes in there, and then they put the transcript of her conversation in the FBI file. And she's in there. She's causing a ruckus. She's asking them why they don't have any Black agents. She's asking them what they do around this. She's asking them if they feel good about their lives doing this to people. And so, you know, I, I also want to emphasize that even though this is very harmful to do to someone, there were these moments where they, you know, just kind of called it what it is and learned to coexist with it and still didn't back down from their politics while doing it. And mm -hmm. people were very flustered by the fact of her coming in and like just boldly proclaiming. She was like, and what about it? <laughs> you know? I love that. And I, I appreciate that about her. She was like, stop calling me, stop following me. You know who I am, you know what I do. They did not stop, but I appreciate her kind of forthcomingness about that. Yes, I love that so much. That is the energy we need, right? To just show up and be like, what about it? <laughs> so I'm going to quickly read the poll results and then we'll do a, a deeper dive in. But it, it says, before reading about this session, had you heard about Queen Mother Moore? It looks like 67% of folks um, had not. 18, 15%, uh, excuse me, her name sounded familiar, but that's about it, and then 18% said yes. So very exciting to dig into this history. And then have you taught about reparations? No, but I'm curious to learn more, 45%. Not yet, but I have plans to, 14%, but only briefly, 35%. And yes, in depth, 6%. So grateful for the folks that are here to do this learning, this collective learning together. So 
we just heard this incredible story, but could you please tell us about Queen Mother Audley Moore and early 20th century radical or organizing? Let's, let's take it back a little bit and think about how did she get started and why does this matter? So um, what makes Queen Mother Moore's story so great is she lived from 1898 to 1997. So basically the entirety of the 20th century. And her last public appearance was in 1995, to give you a scope of kind of the breadth. And so you should think of her as kind of a traveler through every major moment in Black radical or revolutionary politics. Um, she was born in 1898 in New Iberia, Louisiana, which is a small town outside of New Orleans, about two hours away. And she was actually born to this, like, really elite adult life. Like, in her words, that her whole family was planning on her being a bourgeois little thinker. Right. Um, you know, she was primed to be among kind of the black elite, but it just so happened that both of her parents died when she was relatively young. And all of a sudden she kind of slid down the class ladder very quickly and had to take up work to, to take care of her siblings. So it's during this point, we're talking like 1918, 1919. So the early 20th century, um, that she meets a Jamaican sailor and he introduces her to Garveyism, to Marcus Garvey's UNIA, right? Um, and, and then, um, New Orleans is a, is a Garveyite stronghold. And the story she tells that kind of radicalized her on the spot was, is that Garvey was coming to New Orleans, which is true. And he wanted to speak. And the white police officers were like, we're not having it because, you know, having a black nationalist come and rouse people, never a good idea for them. Right. Um, I'm hearing that my audio is going in and out. Maybe I'll try to do this. Is that better? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, hear. perfect. Um, and so um, she says the Garvey. I think your audio went out just a little bit again. Yeah, it looks like we can't hear you. I think it might have been better before. Yeah, it was just very occasionally dipping before, but now it's out altogether. Can I get a thumbs up or down as to whether you can hear me? Because I cannot hear you all. Oh, I can hear you okay. now. Oh, I can hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, so, yeah, so she says that uh, Marcus Garvey comes back and the police are ready to arrest him. Everybody comes packing heat. She's got one in her bosom, one in her pocketbook, and they all jump up on the thing, on, on the benches, and they pull out their guns like this, and they yell, speak, Garvey, speak, speak, Garvey, speak, in unison. And she says that the white police officers go out with the tail between their legs. Now, is this true? Possibly somewhat, right? But more importantly, what it is is a story of her seeing black self-defense and black self-determination and action in relationship to Garvey. And she says she signs up for, Gar for the UNIA then and there. And she really is a lifelong Garveyite after that. Um, but she's also an emblematic of somebody that travels through the different spaces of black radical politics in early 20th century. So she works and organizes with the UNIA. Um, but as you may know, Garvey's movement dissipates when he gets deported for mail fraud. And what's there to take its place? The Communist Party, right? Why is the Communist Party the go-to place for people like Audley Moore who are dyed in the wool black nationalists? Well, in the late 1920s, they declare black people are a nation in the black belt, right, and have the right to self-determination. They say we share an economic condition, a cultural plight, a political condition, a shared culture, right? 
the, 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 the kind of makeshift or the definitions of a nation. And they also defend the working class every day. When people are getting thrown out because they can't pay the rent, the Communist Party, the people that put them back in, right? Um, when people are being lynched, their Communist Party is out protesting against them. Um, so she literally says, I went to this movement, and they were cognizant of what Garvey was speaking of, so I thought it'd be a good vehicle to help my people. And so really, if you think about the two major movements of some black radicals from, say, you know, 1920 to 1950, it really was, or even 1910, right, it really was the UNIA and the Communist Party. And she is somebody who found spaces in both of those movements to adhere to ideas of black nationalism, to adhere to ideas of black self-determination, um, and to disorganize on a daily basis to help black working class people. And coincidentally, it's when she starts to become a kind of working member of the Communist Party, she rises up in the ranks in Harlem. That's when her FBI st file starts. Yes, absolutely. And so you talked a little bit about early 20th century radical organizing. So as we move forward in history just a bit, how did she keep radical politics alive when the nation really was turning towards integration? in the mid 20th century. Yeah, so as a story uh, many of you know, by the time we get to World War II, it, it is not popular to critique the nation state, right? Um, and it is, um, you kind of have to back away from some of the critiques of capitalism and move towards what we would call a popular front or kind of a liberal progressive organizing. She's a big time organizer there, um, but still keeps focusing on two things, even as she's organizing for the war, which are self-determination and self-defense for black people. She continually defends those who have been charged with self-defense, including black men and women. And she tries to always move kind of war resources, war conversations into control of communities by black people. Eventually, then we get to the 1950s, where it is obviously immensely unpopular, unpopular to be a communist because we get the start of the Red Scare. Right? Um, and I think she sees the writing on the wall. Um, she was in New York when she was organizing with the Communist Party, and she goes back home to Louisiana. And I think this was an effort to lay low, kind of get off the radar. But it's also a moment where she's working with what we would call kind of the grassroots level or the lower frequencies to keep Garveyism and black nationalism alive. So she starts a group called the Universal Association of Ethiopian Women. And you can see the, the Universal Association of Ethiopian Women, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, you can see what she's doing there. Um, and it's in this particular group that she argues, she brings back the idea of, of a separate nation for black people. And she also organizes on behalf of everyday people. And she starts the reparations movement. Um, so I want you to think about this as being juxtaposed to the same moment that, um, say, the bus boycott is happening, right? Or um, desegregation struggles are starting. And so in a moment when probably more and more Black people are thinking integration is viable, and that's a reasonable thing to think, and becoming more mainstream, Moore is avidly against it. She's avidly against the Mars on Washington. And she's really still promoting um, not integration or entry into the American nation state, but separation in Black-led and defended communities. Wow. She is just this hardcore organizer in so many ways, shapes, and forms. And to think about her in this, this time period of history, uh, and the work that she's doing, 
Can you tell us about the relationship, what her relationship was with some of the Black Power luminaries, such as Malcolm X or Robert F. Williams, and even tell us a little bit more about some of those those luminaries? Yeah, so if, you know, she's organizing in the 20s, 30s, um, in the 40s, 50s, early 60s, like I said, when maybe this nationalist moment goes out of style, she's still keeping the flame alive. And then as many of us know, by the mid-60s to early 70s, Black nationalism and Black power are making a resurgence um, in some part because of the limited gains of integration, but also because people like Moore have been advocating for it all the time. They never stopped, right? It wasn't this either or. Um, so a lot of the folks that have been um, considered the leaders of this period of what we would call the Black Power Movement or the Black Power Era, one is Malcolm X, who we all know. Um, I've talked to many people who say that um, Malcolm would come and learn at her feet. She, For a time, she lived in Philadelphia, um, and he was organizing in Philadelphia and New York. And he, I, I've talked to many people who would come, say he would come by her house and learn about the organizing of the early 20th century. And she personally credits herself with helping him expand his view. She was always very critical of Elijah Muhammad. She was very critical of the Nation of Islam. And she always, with her Garveyite kind of leanings, wanted him to think about, you know, a diaspora of Black people, not just Black people in the United States. Um, so she would say that she, in those conversations, um, um, kind of pushed him along that way. I'll say that, you know, we can kind of go back and forth. We may never know the extent of it. But I was looking at um, Malcolm X's papers in the Schomburg um, recently, and her address in Philadelphia and her address in New Orleans are both listed in his address book. So I think that, you know, there is, you know, reason to believe that he was, you know, in communication and in conversation with her. Um, another great um, figure from this period is Robert F. Williams, who organized with the NAACP in North Carolina and was actually kicked out for his support of self-defense. He eventually um, becomes, as he moves into exile, he was fleeing charges um, of kidnapping that were not true, um, becomes kind of a black power icon, somebody that is um, friendly with Fidel Castro, somebody that goes to China and really advocates for a full-on revolution for black people in America. We have lots of evidence of correspondence between him and Queen Mother Moore, particularly when he was in exile, um, talking about which way the movement should go what people should be studying, what kind of plans they should be making for advocating for reparations, for black separation, et cetera. So I bring this all up to say, um, at this point, you know, if we're talking about the 60s or 70s, remember I told you Moore was born at the end of the 19th century. She's actually in her 60s or 70s. Um, and this is where she gets this name of kind of being the queen mother of the movement. She's now an elder by the later 20th century. And younger revolutionaries and radicals are talking to her because she knows how to sustain a movement and because she's well-read and literate in, you know, political organizing. Wow, this is such fascinating history. And, and you said something at the end that I, I would love for you to quickly expand upon before we go into breakout rooms. So could you tell us even more about why more? is considered the mother of the modern reparations movement. Yeah, so um, the reparations movement, as we know, or, or how we think about Black people and reparations, is, is really a movement driven by Black working class women. Um, its first iteration, I would argue to you, was right after the Civil War when a woman from Cowie House from um, Rutherford County, Tennessee, 
not too far actually from where I grew up, um, uh, started a movement to get pensions for ex-slaves, right? So payment from the government for the work that they did in the past. Um, she was caught up on mail fraud charges, as the government is wont to do, if you see a theme here. <laughs> um, and the movement kind of died out for a while. But it was more in the late 50s and early 1960s who resurrected this kind of organizing, this grassroots organizing, to file a claim with the American government for reparations. Um, so certainly there were people that were still doing it, but she was the one that kind of started a grassroots movement that had, took hold in sectors across the country. Um, so she was, she says that she did not know of House, that she found a, a kind of religious saying that's saying that people needed to appeal for their captors within 100 years. So if you think about 1865 being the end of the Civil War, she was saying by 1965, Black people needed to make this appeal to the captors. Um, but in reality, what really is happening here is she's using that as the basis to get people on board with a sense of urgency about filing a claim for such a thing. Um, and I want to reiterate that at the time, this seemed incredibly fringe, but she got people on board with filing claims a call across the country and organizations and lawyers incorporating across the country. She would go on a tour talking about this um, in order to um, get people to think about reparations. And one of the things that I think is really um, great about her approach is, um, one, she was willing to appeal to the U.S. government. She thought, you know, money was owed, but it was not just for black people to continue on their lives as usual. She wanted to use that money as the basis of a separate claim for a separate community or a separate nation state. Um, so you see this kind of interesting um, strategy of simultaneously critiquing the American government, but also, you know, appealing to them for that. Um, and most people that you, that you talk to in the 60s, 70s, 80s, including some of these black power luminaries that I'm talking about, really credit oddly more with being the person that first kind of kept pushing this idea um, before it was popular um, and part of popular parlance. Wow. Oh, this history is so fascinating. And I had actually learned about Callie House from another Teach the Black Freedom Struggle class that we had with Dana Ramey Berry and Kelly Nicole Gross when we did our session on a Black Women's History of the United States. So we're going to take a pause now for our breakout rooms. And so now I'd like to welcome back Dr. Farmer as well as Dr. Jean Theo Harris so we can collectively celebrate the documentary that's coming out in just two days on Peacock. And Jean is actually going to talk to Ashley about the intersections of Queen Mother Moore uh, and Mrs. Rosa Parks. And I just want to mention a couple of things that the documentary has already been nominated for Best Bi Biographical Documentary for the 2022 Critics' Choice Documentary Awards. And today, Jean was on Doc Democracy Now! to talk more about the film. So, so excited about not only the film, but the lessons that will accompany it and all of the ways that we can bring this learning and, and your work, Jean, to the classroom. So I'll pass it over to you to continue the conversation. Um, so first, thank you so much, Tierra, and um, just like all this love, it is so nice to be together tonight um, in this week that the film is coming out because in many ways, I think many of you have been with us on this journey and with me on this journey. Um, about Rosa Parks and probably the thing 
I am most excited about is we have developed this whole curriculum suite um, around the film to, as, as like Sierra and Jesse and I like to call Rosa Parks, she's sort of a Trojan horse for teaching a lot of different things, right? And so the lessons really allow people to go in a lot of different directions. And so um, Sierra, Kaylor Jones, Jesse Agopian, Tiffany Patterson, Jessica Rucker, Ursula Wolfroka and Say Bergen all helped with the lessons and then Deborah and Bill and Zinn are like really putting them into the world. And so it's just such, it's so exciting and so beautiful and um, yeah. But as all of you know, I can relate everything to Rosa Parks, but in fact, there is an incredible relationship, a decades long relationship between Rosa Parks and Queen Mother Moore. And so we thought it would be a nice segue back to Queen Mother Moore because it's a super interesting and, and sort of when I was first researching, really unexpected for me when Queen Mother Moore starts to pop up in places in Rosa Parks' life. And then I realized that they are their friends and people would say, oh, yeah, they used to sit in the front row together. You know, they were here sitting in the front row together. They were there sitting in the front row together. And I was like, whoa. And then I think Ashley knows a lot more even than I was able to figure out. So back to you, Ashley. There we go. Um, yeah, so um, I think that um, I think I'll highlight two moments that I think really encapsulate kind of the longevity of Parks and Moore's relationship. Um, one is if you look on the Library of Congress website, you will and you put in Rosa Parks' papers, um, you will find um, a letter from Queen Mother Moore to Rosa Parks um, about that organization I was telling you about, the Universal Association of Ethiopian Women. Um, the group that was started in the late 50s, early 60s, that was advocating for reparations and separation. And um, she's really interested in getting Parks on board um, with supporting the organization and in particular reparations, um, which I think is really interesting because everything I um, have told you kind of suggests, if you believe the narratives, right, that we talked about at the beginning of our session is that, you know, Parks is on the integrationist path, you know, Queen Mother Moore is on this black nationalist path, none between will meet. Um, but as Jean has taught us, Parks was a far more, um, you know, dynamic and politically interesting um, and expansive figure than we've ever really been told. Um, and her and Moore found lots of points of congruence. Um, another is when they would go to the black power conferences together. Um, you know, Queen Mother Morgan was an elder by the 1960s. It's a series of conferences that took place between about 66 and 68, where people were trying to think about forming separate black political parties, um, separate black nations, perhaps. Um, and there you could, the stories go that like, if you were in the hallway, you saw Queen Mother Moore and like her regalia um, telling you the reparations, reparations, reparations. And you would often see Parks beside her or sitting beside her um, at these events. And then um, I mentioned to you that um, Moore was active until the late 1990s. Her last public appearance was at the Million Man March in 1995. Um, and uh, Parks was there as well. There's actually this section of the um, program, the Mothers of the Movement, and there they have you know, Dorothy Height, they've got Maya Angelou, they've got Betty Shabazz, Michael, I'm sorry, Michael, <laughs> Malcolm X's widow, and they've got Parks and um, uh, Queen Mother Moore. 
So that should tell you about um, how their lives are kind of intertwining, but also um, the ways in which they are respected figures in the movement. I often um, say if we if we want to talk in traffic in those narratives, like we would think of Rosa Parks as birthing a modern civil rights movement, you should think of Queen Mother Moore as kind of midwifing a modern black nationalist movement in that way. Wow, that's so fascinating to hear the intersections. And I see Jean's comment in the chat that they literally sat next to each other in so many spaces and, and to see how they converge in that way with their, their ideas and, and their orientation to the work. And, and so you, you mentioned Black nationalism. So how does Moore challenge our traditional understandings of Black nationalism? Um, yeah, so, you know, at, at black nationalism um, as a political philosophy, we're talking about the idea of black people um, being able to exercise community control, um, self-determination, and self-defense, right? Um, and to what end? Some of that is for an actual physical place that would constitute a nation. Um, but more often than not, it's kind of a metaphysical or kind of figurative nation, this idea that black people are bound together, even if we're not technically, um, you know, making claim to some land and within a geographical boundary. Right? Um, but if you have heard these things being advocated for, you've probably heard them being advocated for by black men, right? Whether that be Marcus Garvey, whether that be Malcolm X, whether that be Robert Williams, like I told you about, right? Um, and so I think Moore really was a central architect of what we would think of as like 20th century black nationalism, even though we only give that credit to the Garveys and the Malcolms, right, as I've explained to you. Um, but also, she really, by taking on this persona of Queen Mother, was really able to be in a lot of the central places where black nationalism was being practiced and theorized. So what do I mean by that? Black nationalism, in some extent, in some ways, recapitulates, right, very standard gender norms, right? Men are the heads of the nation. Women are kind of the mothers and the molders of the nation. Um, and so that would leave more out of a lot of the central kind of decision-making circles to which, you know, modern black nationalism owes its stuff to. But what she did, basic, and then she's a lot older, right, than a lot of these folks as well, being born in the late 19th century. So by becoming a queen mother, right, all of a sudden she's an elder to be respected and her advice is to be sought, right? And that makes it okay for her to be in these spaces with all male groups all the time when normally that would not be seen as something that was okay for a woman. And it also, I think, helps her stay relevant far past what people would be considering her organizing prime, right? When we think about organizing, we think of it wrongfully, but nonetheless, we think of it as a young person's game, right? Um, and so by by continuing to be, kind of take on this elder um, position, she enables herself to stay present. So um, if you talk to organizers, you know, in the grassroots and especially in places like uh, Mississippi, they'll say, um, you know, black nationalism is the child of Malcolm X and Queen Mother Moore, right? The political child of Malcolm X and Queen Mother Moore. And I think that is, in fact, the case. Wow. And we, we've talked a little bit about uh, 
Queen Mother Moore and the relationship to Malcolm X and some of the, the men of the movement. And I see a couple of questions in the chat box that I'll kind of pull together. Because mm -hmm. I think that in, in talking about Mrs. Rosa yeah. Parks, many people were sparked about other folks that they yeah. were about too. And so folks in the chat are wondering about Queen Mother Moore's relationship with um, organizers like Angela Davis and mm -hmm. Ella Baker and Septima Clark. Great questions. Now, um, Ella Baker and her were well known to each other and moved in and out of circles together, particularly in Harlem um, with political organizing. Um, but um, I don't have as much evidence about the Septima Clark. Um, and who was the third? Did you ask for Sorry. Yeah, Angela Davis. Angela Davis, yeah. Um, or Angela Davis. So um, one of the things that is complicated about Moore is her gender politics. Um, and I think, and you know, she was also human. Um, and so I think that she did not, she was certainly in support of somebody like Angela Davis, right? And organized for her release as a political prisoner, as she did with many other political prisoners. But as I mentioned before, part of her ability to stay um, kind of relevant was dependent on her being sought after by black male leaders. And so I don't think she forged as good of relationships with younger black radicals um, because I think she kind of saw a little bit of a scarcity model in that sense. That also said, the young black women did not love her because your girl, Queen Mother Moore, had, like I said, some problematic gender politics by every stretch of the matter, but she was who she was. Um, and that included um, promoting polygamy as a way to counteract and, the, um, you know, uh, disparate rates between black men and black women and the mass incarceration of black men. Um, and she bought in a lot of times to this kind of very masculinist, black nationalist ideal, even as her, she herself was flouting all of that, right? Like, it didn't apply to her, but it applied to all the other women, and particularly the young women. So if you talk to younger activists, particularly those that um, were organizing, say, in the 60s or 70s, like a Davis, um, they are um, appreciative of her struggle think that she was had a shrewd political acumen and organizing strategy, but found it difficult to kind of meet with her because she often, they felt kind of taught down to them about and kind of tried to impose her gender politics on them. Um, so, you know, folks are human. And <laughs> that was that. Wow, that is so fascinating. Yeah. I, I appreciate you just naming that, right? That they're human, right? Every day. Oh, yeah, I was like, every yeah, day yeah, ordinary. Ordinary. like you are, I mean, people can be very radical in some respects right. and very conservative in others, right? And that's a perfect right. example where she's literally the first person to sign a declaration for a black nation when tons of men sitting in the audience would not do it. But by that same token, she thinks that men should run that black nation and women should fall in line. It's, it's, she is on part of it, but everybody else has to follow the gender <laughs> Wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And one connection I'm making in my mind about something that I read of yours. So you talk about Moore's reparation activism in particular, um, and, and these are your words, as revealing her commitment to a diverse uh, concept of a reparations movement that offered multiple entry points for activists across the political spectrum. So even with these, the, the problematic gender mm -hmm. politics, can you talk more about how she did this? Yeah, so um, we might think of reparations as um, symbolic in the sense that maybe it's an apology or maybe it's a monument or a testament to something. We might think of reparations as a payout, right, of um, either money owed from labor 
that was performed without funding or um, as retribution for a long period of sustained racial and psychological care. Or you might think about reparations as um, programs put in place, like job programs or housing programs, to redistribute or help reinforce or level the playing field between black people and white people after years of injustice, right? And then you might think of reparations as, um, you know, just an actual paycheck that people are able to do whatever they want with. I would say that over the course of her reparations activism, which we're talking, if she's starting to think about this in the late 50s, and I'm telling you she's passing away in the 90s, she's thinking about this for almost half a century. Her thinking about reparations and what it could look like evolves over time. And so um, if you drop down in different moments of her life, you will see her advocating for different ways of reparations. Some of that, like I said, is appealing for a payout. And sometimes in pamphlets, she's talking about government programs to level the playing field. At other moments, she is talking about, um, you know, acknowledgement from the American nation state of the wrongs done. But what that kind of diverse understanding of repayment and repair does is allow different people different entry points into advocating for this cause, right? I think that's one of the things in which she was incredibly expansive and imaginative in that way. Right. Um, and so some folks maybe couldn't get on board with like, we're going to take the money and form a separate nation, but they could get on board with government programs that, you know, privileged or, you know, leveraged the playing field for jobs or schools or employment. Right. Um, or maybe they could get on board with saying, if you can trace your lineage, you should get a paycheck for that unpaid label of your ancestors. Um, so she I like to think of her as kind of a watering can, sprinkling water and letting the flowers of reparations bloom in all kinds of places. Um, so the folks in Philadelphia wanted a separate nation. The folks in, you know, L.A. were a bunch of lawyers that wanted the government to give a paycheck. Right. Um, and, and she was supportive and kind of the patron saint of all of those different ways of, of thinking about this. Wow. And it's interesting because it, it feels like she's going about kind of a narrative strategy where she is mm-hmm. knowing audiences are mm-hmm. and then ultimately tailoring the message, but still mm-hmm. staying strong. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. larger, she's seeing the larger picture, of right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is a really powerful blueprint for how we mm-hmm. might think about that kind of uh, organizing today. So I'm going to shift my questions a little bit because there's a question in the chat, and I also have a couple of questions about related specifically to teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sydney Stewart in the chat asks, "What recommendations do you have for educators in lifting up Queen Mother Moore's contributions, but also as we've talked about the complexity?" Uh, in spaces. That's a great point. Um, I think that there's a couple of different ways um, that you could approach it. One would be, as we've taught before, um, offering a, a couple of pages from the FBI file. Um, it offers an opportunity for students just to see that dynamic in play, um, but also think about, you know, what it must be like um, to do this kind of work under the heavyweight of surveillance, which we don't talk about enough. Um, And um, separate from that, I think she has a wonderful pamphlet um, that you can get a scan from, um, from most libraries, um, that is called Why Reparations. And it details her intellectual rationale for it, and then some of these programs that I'm talking about or I've referenced before. Um, So a great lesson plan would be um, 
for her to, um, for students to read through that and think through um, the reasoning of what she offers. One of the things that's really interesting about that particular pamphlet is that she references both, you know, American payouts to say those who were in Japanese internment camps, for example, but also other forms of reparations that have been played globally. So it's clear she has kind of a globally conscious mindset about it. Um, so thinking um, through through that with students would be helpful in what reparations might look like in their communities as well, or if these programs seem feasible, why or why not. Um, and then I think um, that um, there are several oral histories that have been published of hers. And the oral histories are where you really get a sense of, of these gender politics. Um, they'll ask her things like, what is the role of women? And you will cringe <laughs> a little bit at, at, the, at the responses that she gives. Um, one of them is published in a journal called The Black Scholar, for example. Um, and, and so, um, you know, in one part of the interview, she'll be offering this wonderful assessment, like, of, of reparations or, or um, you know, kind of racial terror and the American nation state, the next thing she'll be like, husbands for five women, right? And so, <laughs> um, you know, you might just ask students to read through that and say, you know, how, how, how do we understand this person? You know, where would you, if we had to kind of make a graph or, um, you know, a, a kind of plot of politics at this particular moment, what things will we consider, you know, kind of reformist, radical, revolutionary, conservative? And, and what does that tell, me, tell us about the complexities of people as human beings? Oh, I love that so much, the complexity of who we are as human beings. And one thing that you lift up in a lot of your work just is, is how people evolve over time, yeah. how yeah. organizers and activists have, have changed their politics. And one thing that you uh, wrote that I, I read, uh, you had said, you know, we don't wake up woke, <laughs> right? We, we develop those politics over time. And so I just appreciate you lifting that up as a teaching strategy, right, to explore what that might look like in the, in the classroom, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it, it, if we frame it as, you know, again, I think this is something that in particular Jean does very well, as we kind of strip away these narratives of heroism and talk about people that we know in history as just people that looked around them and made a set of choices, and those choices, you know, had big reverberations, but nonetheless, they were regular people presented with a set of choices, and they made the choice that they thought was the best at that moment. Um, it helps us see ourselves less a little bit as people that have to be kind of these martyrs for a movement and just say everybody has a set of choices and we can try to, you know, just move the way that we want to see the world go, right? Um, and sometimes people have missteps. Um, everybody evolves, right? I always tell my students, like, I tell them, I don't know what the opposite of canceled is. I call it being rescheduled. But I know that's, I know that's not right. <laughs> but I don't have a better word for it. But, but, like, you know, I mean, you know, more would be canceled for, her pol for those kind of politics now, right? Um, so everything is also really historically specific. Um, so, you know, we need to make sure that we understand people as evolving in their politics, but also um, understanding that they may they may be reacting to different things in their different times. Um, and, you know, instead of condemning somebody, think, you know, what about their life makes them think that's the right thing to espouse? You know, Queen Mother Moore 
when I'm talking about the gender politics and how she didn't gel with younger activists, I mean, she's almost 80 years older than them, right? It was a whole different world in which she came of age. And so that doesn't mean that she doesn't have to adapt or that she should not be critiqued. But it helps us provide insight as to why, you know, maybe comparing her with somebody that is, you know, coming of age in a feminist movement might <laughs> look a little bit different, right? Yeah. And speaking of evolving, as we're also talking about teaching strategies, um, one thing that I read about your teaching is that you do a freedom reflection exercise in your class. Um, and I found that the questions that you use to be really thought-provoking um, and might be really helpful for so many of the educators on this call. So could you talk to us a little bit more about the freedom exercise? Sure. Um, so I teach here in Texas, which um, as many of you can probably attest to, is a wild time to teach black history in Texas. Um, but um, I teach a, a big intro to African-American history class. You know, we're talking 100 plus students, right? Um, and a lot of them, um, because of the standards of Texas history, have never had a whole kind of um, understanding of black history. Um, and they're mostly in my class because the school requires them to take two semesters of U.S. history, two semesters of Texas history. So this is their U.S. history requirement. So I've set that as the basis to say that um, many of them come with, with very little knowledge of African-American history from the start, right? Um, and I believe, though, I am not te – they have a textbook, right? There's nothing that I am um, teaching them that they really can't learn in other books and online, right? The value of the classroom is that we come together to discuss it and we hear each other's perspectives and points of view. Um, and also to think about, once we assimilate knowledge, how we might behave differently because of it, right? Um, so at the very beginning of the class, I have them write a reflection on, on that asks them three things. To, to rate their knowledge of African-American history on a scale of one to ten. Um, two, to think about what they think is the biggest problem, like basically facing black people today and what that stems from historically. And then kind of three, what do they think would solve that? Then we go from, we're talking like the 1400s all the way to like Trayvon Martin in one semester. It's quite the odyssey, right? And then at the end, I ask them to reassess their knowledge of African-American history because we all know they need to be told that they learned things, right? Because they'll swear they didn't otherwise. <laughs> um, so that I ask them, um, do they still believe that the thing that they thought was historically the problem, like kind of the root of racial oppression is the same? But then the third thing that I always ask them to do is say, now that you know, now that you've had the privilege to sit and examine this for a whole semester, how will you behave differently? One, on an individual level, two, on a communal level, and like in kind of a family communal level, and then three, on our campus level. And I'm not asking for, you know, huge acts. You know, I'm not asking you to always stage a protest. But what I'm emphasizing is that it is okay that you did not know. That is why we're here. There's no better place to not know something than to come into a classroom. That's exactly, I, it is my job to teach you this, right? People always say, it's not my job. It actually is my job. But once you know, you have a responsibility to those around you to use that knowledge to move differently through the world. And so I'm less concerned with whether they know, you know, every little amendment and every little year, but I am interested in them walking away with an ability to see and empathize with the black experience differently and try to make adjustments in their lives that make it move towards a community that is more caring and empathetic, right? 
Um, so that's the goal. Um, and um, usually the, their their historical thing that they think was the root of oppression is quite different, um, which is a testament to them kind of rethinking in that way. Um, but sometimes they're just um, simple things. They'll say things like, when I hear everybody sitting around in the dorm room and they start talking about black people in this way, I'll intervene and just say, you know, actually, it's really harmful and that perpetuates a stereotype, right? Or some of them say, you know, um, I, I'm going to, you know, share some of these sources and read them with my parents who I know have no idea what's going on. And I think, you know, they're shaping those things, right? So, um, you know, some of them make bolder proclamations, but I find the ones where they just are willing to make kind of, or at least, you know, say they're going to make a slight adjustment and think about their awareness of the world around them differently to be, you know, incredibly rewarding. That's so moving. Just a reminder of how the classroom is this site of, of possibility, but a site of action, a site of evolution and experimentation and exploration of the history and also of ourselves and what our role ultimately is in the history that we make every day. So I have one final question that will kind of bring us to the current moment um, and hopefully we'll, we'll tie all of the pieces together. But Right now, of course, we're seeing in, in 42 states and counting that there's legislation banning critical conversations about racism and oppression in schools. And so with the history of Queen Mother Moore, thinking about conversations about reparations, thinking about conversations around black nationalism, all of that, right, in many places cannot be taught. So what are your thoughts on the attacks on teaching the truth about United States history? And how do they relate to many of the stories that we talked about tonight yeah I mean you know I'm right there with you I think there's a bill to come and I think audit every class to take CRT and tenure anybody that teaches it um, at UT that is going to be voted on in the next week so um, it is it is it is an interesting time to be sure right um, and so um, you know I would say a couple of things I think one of the things that Queen Mother teaches me is that um, this isn't new, and I take comfort in that, right, because if, when you realize that it's not new, that people have been through it before and endured it before, um, you kind of know that that we'll still be here in the end doing what it is that we do, right? Um, and, and I think, so that's just lesson one, right? She, she was certainly under attack in, for her beliefs and her teachings, um, and she kept on keeping on, and, and she endured it, right, and is now being Harold, right, and getting biographies written about her. That's one. Um, two, I think that um, these fo folks that have traditionally had to address these subjects outside of formal institutions have offered us a little bit of a roadmap. And to me, that is freedom schools, um, and, you know, not unlike what we're doing now. And um, what will, we may have to do for our students, I'm not suggesting that we don't continue to fight these bills as they come down the line, but um, that does not mean that we have to wholesale stop talking about it. We may just have to shift the venues with which we talk about it. Um, but one thing that um, teaching students in a state where they're actively trying to do this has taught me is that the students really do have a real appetite for it. And if you build it, I do think that they will come. Um, so I think we have to all rely on our networks um, to continue to try to do that as much as possible. Um, and we also have to keep having community, right? I mean, part of... Part of what this is about, I mean, they don't really, 
they don't even know what they're saying, right? And nor do I think they really actually care. Um, it's just they want somebody to glom onto, right? As as a, as a, to be kind of the target of this. Um, and so, you know, we need to make sure that we stay in community with one another, um, that we understand that that's what it is, and not to get, um, you know, distracted from that. And if we see folks that we care about in our community becoming the target of that, be ready to, you know, support and stand up for them as much as possible. Um, in that case, but you know, we we will we will get through this, is what I would say. And um, you know, as people have done it before, and we know that it's so scary for exactly the same reason that we talked about when we got on today. It's because what happens when our students know the truth, right? They're afraid of how they might behave differently. They're afraid of that they won't be able to have the same level of power and keep people entranced by these kind of Disney-like narratives of what the history is versus what it actually is. So as much as we can continue to push that and empower our students to say that the truth really is a path to the different world, then I think that, you know, we're on the right path and we'll be okay. But in the meantime, I want to emphasize that it also sucks because I look at, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't want, I don't want to downplay people's real experience with this, right? Like, people will be okay, right? Like, I may or may not be targeted, right? But I, you know, I will be okay. But there, there is real trauma involved sometimes in becoming the target of these things, right? In the process, and so I don't, I want to reassure people that there is community and that they are on the right side and doing the right thing, without also saying that, you know. Um, when you become the target of some of these things, it can be scary for a time, right? Um, and and I don't want to minimize people's experiences, even while saying that I don't think in the end, you know, it will be all right. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. And solidarity to all of the educators, all the librarians, the organizers, the activists, the family members, the students, everyone who is on this call um, that continues to teach truth and to seek truth and continues to promote the truth because we know that this is this is our path to freedom. It's our path to liberation. And so I want to end with a quote, uh, a quote from your writing. Uh, and, and I think that it will hopefully tie together this conversation and bringing together Queen Mother more, but also thinking about learning the history so that we can dream new futures. And so in your words, Dr. Farmer, you said Queen Mother Moore certainly meant that African-Americans deserved and should demand repayment. But her larger message and her contribution to the Black Freedom Movement was to show that through a reparations movement, organizers could reckon with each other and their troubled past as well as chart a course toward a collective self-determining and self-governing future. And so with that, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was a extensive discussion on the lifetimes and contributions of Altley, Queen Mother Moore. And right now we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment for this program. Yeah. 
York townhouse flat and I ain't done that. Welcome back, and that was uh, Hermit Thomas uh, from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, doing the track entitled Fancy. And our last segment uh, for this program will be on the legend Hazel Scott, the uh, pianist, uh, composer, media personality, as well as public spokesperson uh, for uh, social justice causes. Let's listen in uh, to this uh, piece on uh, Hazel Scott. Hello there. I'm Hazel Scott. I'd like you to meet the members of my trio. We have Charlie Mingus on bass and Rudy Nichols on drums. We'd like to do our version of A Foggy Day for you. is haunting me. At one time, she was the toast of the jazz and popular music world, an internationally renowned pianist and top-selling recording artist. She headlined New York's Cafe Society. She soloed at Carnegie Hall. She was featured in five Hollywood films. She was glamorous, talented, famous, and rich. Her controversial marriage to civil rights activist and U.S. congressman Adam Clayton Powell was big-time media fodder, dissected and celebrated in the press for years. Three decades before Oprah, she was the first African-American woman to host her own television show. And then Hazel Scott disappeared. From the peak of fame, she slid into oblivion. Whatever happened to Hazel Scott? Why today do we admire and listen to so many of her contemporaries? none of whom were more famous or adored than Scott in her prime. But we never even hear her name. So who is Hazel Scott, and why has she been all but erased from history? Hazel Scott was born on the West Indies island of Trinidad in 1920. Her mother was a classical pianist, her father a scholar and intellectual. By the time she was three years old, Hazel was well-known around the neighborhood as a piano prodigy. 
When she was four, Hazel and her mother moved to Harlem. When Hazel was eight, her mother took her to audition at Juilliard. Although the minimum age of admission was 16, one Juilliard professor was so impressed with the little girl's dazzling rendering of a Rachmaninoff prelude that he arranged to have her admitted into Juilliard as his own private pupil. He called her a genius. Then the depression hit. Money was scarce, and Mrs. Scott had to be extra resourceful to find it. All-girl bands were big at the time, but clearly none needed a classical pianist. So Mrs. Scott taught herself the saxophone, and she taught herself jazz. For several years, she played with various all-women's bands, eventually forming her own. Mrs. Scott still hoped that her daughter would pursue the classical music career that she herself could not. But teenage Hazel had other ideas. She wanted to play jazz. For a while, she played piano in her mother's own band, honing her chops. While still in high school, Hazel debuted at the hugely popular Roseland Ballroom. Her act followed Count Basie. She was a huge hit. She then hosted her own radio show on WOR in New York City, choosing to play complicated classical numbers, which showcased her piano virtuosity. But it was at Manhattan's Yacht Club, working as an intermission pianist where she invented the Hazel Scott sound. To avoid duplicating numbers that others played, she decided to swing the classics. She would take a classical number by Bach or Mozart or Liszt, speed it up, then add syncopation and a strong left hand. Hazel wasn't the first to try this. It's a style often called jazzing up the classics. But to pull it off well took a mastery of classical music, swing, and the ability to improvise. Hazel had it all. Hazel's career was gathering steam. Then, at age 19, came her big break. It happened at Cafe Society, and it was Billie Holiday who made sure it happened. Southern trees, there's strange fruit. Cafe Society became legendary on its opening night when headliner Billie Holiday debuted her new song, Strange Fruit. Written by Abe Mirapol, this powerful song about lynching became Holiday's signature number. Crowds flocked to Cafe Society to hear her sing it. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Cafe Society was the first fully integrated nightclub in America. Opened in 1938, Cafe Society was the creation of Barney Josephson, a left-leaning progressive who wanted to challenge the de facto segregation of night spots throughout the country. 
Even places like Harlem's Cotton Club, which featured black performers, was a whites-only establishment when it came to the clientele. Josephson envisioned Cafe Society as an American version of the European political cabaret, and the club was often the scene of left-wing fundraisers. Featuring the top talent of the day, from Bessie Smith and Miles Davis to Nat King Cole and the Weavers, Cafe Society quickly became New York's hottest night spot. When Holiday had to cut her engagement short, she requested that Josephson replace her with 19-year-old Hazel Scott. He did. Hazel and her jazzed-up classics were an instant sensation. In 1940, she recorded her first solo album, Swinging the Classics, which sold well and received rave reviews. Now a shining star at the center of Cafe Society's exhilarating intellectual and cultural scene, Hazel's friends and fans included Duke Ellington, Eleanor Roosevelt, Frank Sinatra, and Paul Robeson. She was making gobs of money. She bought a house in upstate New York and was chauffeured to and from her performances. She had her hands insured by Lloyds of London. But even as her fame and fortune grew, Hazel Scott always stuck by her political values. She had it written into her contracts that she would not play before a segregated audience. This limited where she could perform, but she didn't care. And if she arrived at a venue only to find that in fact it was racially segregated, she simply walked out. When Hazel was 22, she landed a role in a Broadway musical. After seeing the play, New York Times theater critic Brooks Atkinson wrote that Hazel Scott has the most incandescent personality of anyone in the show. It was inevitable that Hollywood would come calling. Just hold on and suck it. At the time Hazel Scott showed up in Hollywood, African Americans in movies were nearly always portrayed as buffoons, incompetent, servants, or villains. For African American women, the roles were essentially limited to maids or hookers. Hazel knew all this, and she wasn't going to play along. She had always been committed to projecting an image of pride and dignity while performing. She wasn't going to change that now. Right off the bat, she refused to play any demeaning or subservient roles. She refused to play a maid, mammy, or prostitute. On four different occasions, she turned down the chance to play a singing maid. Hazel had it written into her contract that she would play only one single character in any film she acted in, herself. She also had it written into her film contracts that she had final say over what music she performed and what clothing she wore in each movie. To each demand, Hollywood acquiesced. They wanted Hazel Scott however they could get her. Just a minute. Who do you want to see? I'm Hazel Scott. We're here for the audition. Oh, Miss Scott. Yes, they're waiting for you. Go right in. I'm not much good at promoting, gentlemen, so this audition will have to do the talking for me. But with Lena Horn and Hazel Scott in a new review, why, you've got a surefire hit before you can even reach your checkbook. How's the piano, Hazel? I guess it'll hold up. 
Between her recording successes, concert appearances, and film acting, Hazel was becoming one of the best-known and highest-paid African-American entertainers in the country. Then her career hit a roadblock. She was working on the 1943 Mae West musical, The Heat's On, for Columbia Pictures. In the movie's final scene, Hazel leads a group of African-American soldiers and their sweethearts in a rousing song and dance number, sending them off to war. Rehearsals went great. That is, until Hazel discovered that the director and costume designer were planning to have the women wear grubby aprons during the scene. Hazel hit the roof. She told the director that no black woman would ever wear a dirty apron when seeing their man off to war. The director told Hazel that how others were costumed was none of her business. So Hazel went on strike. She refused to perform her scene until the women's costumes were changed. After a three-day standoff, the director finally agreed to her demands. The women's aprons were switched to attractive floral print dresses. When Columbia President Harry Cohn got wind of the situation and all the money Hazel's strike cost the studio, he vowed that Hazel Scott would never set foot on another movie studio lot as long as he lived. Other than completing work on a previously contracted film, she didn't. Returning to New York, Hazel resumed her music career. She performed for servicemen at hospitals and at the stage door canteen. She became a pinup favorite among soldiers. And then she fell in love. Is this the land of the free and the home of the brave? Is this a land with liberty and justice for all? Is this one nation indivisible under God? Either let us practice the democracy we are preaching, or shut up. Adam Clayton Powell, Baptist minister, leading civil rights activist in Harlem, first black New York City councilman, and now, in 1945, newly elected congressman of the United States, was 12 years older than Hazel. Powell was already married when he and Hazel fell in love. They began a secret affair, and then, just four days after his divorce, they married. The Scott Powells were the power couple of the moment. Both were accomplished, admired, and respected in their fields. Both were politically progressive and committed to civil rights. Americans, both black and white, were fascinated with this glamorous, controversial, wealthy, attractive pair. Photographers followed them. The press wrote cover stories about them. They were the most famous black couple in America. In 1950, Hazel was approached by the Dumont Television Network to host and star in her own television show. This is the Dumont Television Network. Dumont was the fourth and smallest network in the infant TV industry. With a smaller budget than the big three networks, Dumont learned to do more with less, and they took risks. Dumont produced the pioneering Cavalcade of Stars, a variety show starring Jackie Gleason and his honeymooners. They aired Captain Video and his Video Rangers, a futuristic sci-fi series, and they produced the first television show hosted by an African-American woman. 
The Hazel Scott Show premiered on April 14, 1950. Unfortunately, no footage of this groundbreaking show exists today. But we do know that the program was a then-standard 15 minutes, during which Hazel played the piano, sang, and chatted with the television audience. She was the whole show. The show got excellent ratings and was expanded from once a week to three times a week. And then the roof caved in. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the that's basic principles of Americanism. That's not the question. Blacklisting in the entertainment industry had been underway since 1947, when the Hollywood Ten, a group of progressive writers, directors, and producers, were called before the Congressional House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, questioned about their political beliefs, and sent to prison for refusing to answer. In 1950, a right-wing journal put out a booklet called Red Channels. The booklet listed 151 actors, writers, musicians, broadcast journalists, and others in the entertainment industry suspected of being subversives. The list included Orson Welles, Lillian Hellman, Langston Hughes, Leonard Bernstein, and Hazel Scott. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease. During the anti-communist hysteria of the Cold War era, just having your name in red channels was enough to get a person fired from their job and blacklisted from future employment. In an effort to save her career, Hazel volunteered to testify before HUAC on her own behalf. Friends told her not to go, but she went ahead anyway. During her testimony, she denied being a communist or communist sympathizer, but she also challenged the morality of HUAC and the entire blacklisting enterprise. In her testimony, she said, It has been possible for all sorts of witch doctors, pseudo-experts, and self-appointed judges to step forward and offer their particular brand of subversive selection. This is the day for the professional gossip, the organized rumor monger, and the smear artist with a spray gun. Her testimony made big news. One week after she appeared before HUAC, the Hazel Scott Show was canceled. And it wasn't just the show. Hazel's career took a sudden plunge. After being in high demand for years, concert bookings were suddenly harder to come by. What's more, her marriage was falling apart. So Hazel went overseas, eventually divorcing Powell and moving with her son to Paris. In Europe, her popularity soared. She gave concerts throughout the continent and around the globe. She recorded new albums. She created a new life for herself. Hazel's Paris apartment became a gathering place for expats and old friends. In 1963, she joined James Baldwin in front of the U.S. Embassy in Paris, protesting racial injustice in America and supporting Martin Luther King's March on Washington. Eventually, Hazel decided to return home. 
However, when she did resettle in the U.S. in 1967, she found that the music scene had passed her by. Jazz had been eclipsed by rock and roll, and it was becoming increasingly difficult for jazz artists to make a living. Doubly so for Hazel Scott. She didn't do modern jazz. She wasn't cool. Hazel moved to New York to be close to her son and his family. She became a doting grandmother, playing an occasional club date now and then. Hazel Scott died of cancer in 1981. She was just 61 years old. Welcome back, and uh, that was a uh, special audio documentary on uh, the legendary uh, Hazel Scott, and that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, March 25th, uh, 2023. Uh, Our focus on uh, women's history will continue uh, in our next program. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with Hazel Scott from the album entitled Great Scott.
me or leave me, let me be lonely. You won't believe me, but I love you only. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else. You might find the night time the right time for kissing, but night time's my time for just reminiscing, regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else.
Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.